Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is the macro environment and flexible credit, and it's for institutional and professional investors. I'm Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist with our Global Market Insights Strategy Group. With me today is Nick Gartside, International Chief Investment Officer, and Usman Neem, Senior Portfolio Manager, both within our Global Fixed Income, Currency and Commodities Group here at JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So maybe as a structure for this podcast, why don't we start off talking about the outlook for policy at the Fed, broaden that out to what's happening for the ECB and the Bank of Japan, because that's very relevant as we start to think particularly about longer term rates, and then we can move perhaps across the credit spectrum. So Nick, why don't you start us with that agenda? What do you think we're going to see from the Fed this year? And if I can ask you specifically, how has the US fiscal stimulus affected your views of what we'll see from them in the coming 18 months? Well, I think the first way to look at that is, let's look at the economy as the Fed would. So when you look at unemployment, effectively at 50-year lows, when you look at inflation, the risk this year is inflation ticks up a little because we're seeing very tentative signs of wage growth. Now, the risk to that scenario, Karen, really because of the fiscal stimulus, because of the budget plan in the US, is that growth is even stronger, not weaker than expected. So taking a step back, what does that mean for Fed policy? It means certainly four rate hikes this year, one in each of the calendar quarters. And broadening that out across the world then, you know, you've talked about the return of inflation. It's a bit less evident that it is coming back with full throttle in Europe. Of course, we've been waiting a long time in Japan. What about the ECB and Bank of Japan in that equation? So again, when we focus on the ECB, the reality is the growth outlook is fairly extraordinary. Eurozone growth this year will be in and around 2.5%, very roughly the same as the US. So then the question is that the ECB have got monetary policy set at emergency levels. Is Europe in an emergency? Categorically not. So we can at least see the market starting to price. The ECB may not do it, but the market can price rate hikes this year from the ECB. That's not factored into markets at the moment. And it means that when you think of all those negative yielding bonds in Europe, the direction of those is that yields go higher. Now, shifting to the Bank of Japan, a slightly different story. Growth looks pretty good in Japan, but the question is, where on earth is the inflation? And look very hard, and you can barely see it. That means that from the Bank of Japan perspective, they're likely to continue with yield curve control and very easy policy this year. So how do we put all that together when we start to think about the US curve? Because for me, one of the most fascinating things last year was the US looking strong and the Fed normalising policy and the two year up 70 basis points and the 10 year down on the year. Presumably, policy at the ECB, policy at the Bank of Japan played a big role in that phenomenon. So where do you see the curve going? So the bias in the US is that the curve flattens. So let's think about both bits of the curve. If we get four rate hikes this year, and only around two and a half to three are priced, the front end takes the strain. That means two-year yields go up by a fair bit. If we think of the back end of the curve, 
typically what happens is 10-year yields settle very roughly where the Fed funds rate settles. So let's say we get four hikes this year, another couple next year, you've got a Fed funds rate settling in and around three and a quarter, three percent. So in that environment, yes, 10-year yields go higher, but two-year yields go even higher. You get that flattening of the yield curve. And can the US 10-year break through three? It's had a go at it this year and failed. Will we see that this year? Oh, it's likely at some point. Again, think of the direction of economic growth. It's likely to be stronger, not weaker. Think of the direction of inflation. A little bit of wage inflation pushes that a little higher. And of course, there's plenty of supply of US Treasuries as well. Add those three things together. It may take a few goes, but we'll certainly break 3% at some point. Isman, can I bring you in and start to think outside of the government bond space within fixed income, yields going up, how does this asset class then perform? I think it depends on the trajectory of how fast those rate rises are and how well the different credit asset classes can absorb the credit rate rise. And then with that in mind, because these interest rate hikes are on the premise of positive growth, you know that's going to be good for the credit assets alone anyway, but especially for things like US high yield or emerging markets, they have much higher yields anyway, and the component of their yields comes from a larger credit spread, which has a higher buffer. And because these are basically positive growth technicals, it should benefit from them, but you're likely to see a compression between investment grade and high yield assets. I think that's what we've been seeing for the last few months and likely to see over the next few months. Can I ask you a bit about leverage? Because of course... We have seen household leverage come down largely over the last 10 years, but where it has built up has been within the corporate sector. Does that worry you? How are you looking at leverage across the different areas of credit? I definitely think it's something that we should be looking at. Whether we should be concerned about it, I'd probably track back. But if I look at typical sort of like US investment grade corporate leverage around the kind of you know two and a half times number, and it hasn't come down materially from 2016, given how low rates have been and allowed corporates to kind of increase the amount of debt that they have in order to purchase other companies, engage in M&A. But as long as growth is positive and they can grow into that capital structure and fill that leverage then I think there's nothing to be concerned about immediately. And I guess, you know, with respect to high yield companies, the key concern for that is what's the default rate looking like? And, you know, we've never seen the last 12-month trading default rates be so low. I think in the US, it's currently at like just below 2%. And in European high yield, it's hovering around half a percent. So it's our view that those default rates remain somewhat benign and don't rise. Therefore, you would expect corporates to grow into their capital structure and be able to pay back debt. And that should keep a lid on credit spreads in my mind. So there's enough momentum in the economy behind corporate earnings to mean that although their debt servicing is going up, as Nick's highlighted, they've got the cash flow to cope with that. I mean, we've seen that interest coverage, while rates have been going up, interest coverage is still quite high as well despite the leverage being elevated. And is there a chance that some of the tax cuts from the US administration are actually in turn used to pay down some of that leverage? Is that a theme I think you're. All? I think the companies in the high yield space are incentivized to do that. I don't think it's as impactive for US investment grade, but definitely that would be the premise. So can we talk maybe about the volatility that we had in February and... I suppose one of the things that many of the clients I speak to are most concerned about is an environment where equities are falling 
and they're looking for something to diversify their portfolio. They want protection given equities have had such a good run last year. And what's frightened them about February is the prospect that when they're losing from their equities in their portfolio, they also lose from their bonds. So how would you advise those investors? Where are the opportunities for particularly at this point of the cycle, if you're looking to diversify with the risks of inflation, what would you advise those clients? Well, I think the first thing to recognise is that Let's be honest, that increase in volatility is very, very welcome. I mean, volatility was anchored at abnormally low levels for a very long time. The reason for that, of course, was because of central bank policy. QE, low interest rates, sucked volatility out. The reversal of that pushes volatility back in. So the key is it makes markets much more two-way. So if we think of 10-year US treasuries, they start the year with a yield of 240. We're close to 290 now. So you've had a fairly dramatic repricing. That's now become a much more two-way and a much more attractive market. That's interesting because I think one of the priors that people have is that as central banks step back and they aren't buying each dip, that's something we should naturally worry about. But your point is that actually that gives us some opportunities because if they aren't buying each dip, then that gives you, within your portfolios, opportunities to pick up good value paper. Very much so. And again, that is an interesting lead also into that global bond opportunity set because people are always surprised at the size of what you can do in global bond markets. Add up every bond in the world, you get to around 100 trillion US dollars. So you've got this huge opportunity set. And out of that huge opportunity set, you can, of course, get diversification. If you get diversification, what you can then do is actually build stronger portfolios and you can have a higher reward for lower risk taken. Usman, can I ask you about a flexible approach to fixed income investing? For someone who hasn't heard that term, what does that mean? Flexible investing basically allows one to invest across different asset classes over a cycle. So for example, you could be investing in emerging markets, US high yield, US investment grade, or European high yield. And your ability to change your allocation and how much you're invested in across those sectors can change over a market cycle. So currently, you know, we would argue we're late cycle, but these rate hikes that we're seeing are on the back of positive growth. So that's still going to be a boon for emerging markets and, and high yield. But at the same time, your, your risk to duration or your interest rate exposure that you have, you should try and bring that down. So a focus for us has been looking at shorter dated securities within US high yield, European high yield, and something that has a floating component to interest rates. So one of the interesting things we found recently is looking at European high yield floating rate notes which if your concern is that rates are going to go higher and they're predominantly quite short dated, you'll still capture that spread, but you're hedged for rates as well. Tell me, should this type of portfolio then be considered as a replacement to a more traditional fixed income allocation, particularly at this point of the cycle? I think through its approach in being able to invest across different asset classes, so you can evolve as things change. So obviously, if we're late in the cycle now and the rate rises are somewhat shallow, then you can still capture the market spread from the higher beta sectors. But then at the same time, let's say you're 75 to 80 percent of the way through the hiking cycle and central banks start to reduce growth, then you want to be shifting back into investment grade where your interest rate risk is slightly higher and maybe some higher yield companies start to suffer from the amount of leverage or debt that they have on balance sheet. 
And Nick, you talked earlier about the fact that the key risk ahead of us right now is things getting a bit too hot rather than getting too cold. We're actually more worried about the economies overheating, too much inflation and what that means for rates. But presumably at some point, the market will start to tip from worrying that the Fed is not so much easing off the accelerator, but is actually starting to touch the brake. Can I get your thoughts on what that tipping point is? What's your assessment of the Fed funds rate in the US that actually starts to crimp growth and change that debate? So I think one way to think of that is to think of the Fed funds rate relative to the rate of inflation. So right now we have a Fed funds rate one and a quarter to one and a half. We've got inflation about a percent higher. So arguably the first stop for the Fed is to lift the federal funds rate in line with inflation. That gets us all the way to next year. And of course, with a growing economy, with the stimulus we've seen, with the tax cuts, it could well be that both growth and inflation are higher in a year's time than they are now. So ultimately, it's realistic that the Fed maybe get to a 1% tight level, i.e. the federal funds rate a percent or so ahead of inflation. The point is we're some way off that. Right. You're, you're looking at a time that is one to two at least years away. It's not an imminent risk. And what about the long-term rate? One of the things the Fed has really slashed in its forecasts is that long-term rate that the US economy can cope with. Now we've got two-sided inflation risk again, the question of whether productivity will return. Could we see the Fed start revising that assessment and actually thinking that terminal rate, that long-run rate the US economy can cope with is actually starting to be revised up following a long trend of it being revised down? I mean, it should be revised up. That's the bottom line. The question, though, I suppose, is in which cycle? It may well be that in this cycle we get to a terminal rate of three and a quarter, three and a half, something like that. But it may be the next cycle when the crisis is well behind us, a lot of the deleveraging's happened, that we can get to a higher terminal rate. But the direction is very clear. I mean, at some point this year, if you think of those Fed dots, they're going to be raised. And can I ask you, the Bank of Japan's policy to fix its 10-year yield at 0%, um, a fairly extraordinary policy, certainly well into the unconventional space, How much influence do you think that's having on global long-term rates? And if we really don't see that policy change over the coming year or next, does that threaten the 10-year breaching that 3% that you mentioned? I mean, certainly it's a very powerful impact because you've got the Bank of Japan really is this huge source of uh, global liquidity. And then, you know, I think the key thing is where does that liquidity go? I mean, uh, to point to that, I mean, we've seen that liquidity come into corporate bond markets. You know, if you look at um, the Far East, we've had nothing but consistent buying in U.S. corporate investment grade. And now over the last year, also in European investment grade. So that's where that liquidity is finding a home. And that, in a sense, is a very big positive technical that we've seen in the investment grade markets globally. And that has a knock on effect as well for anyone that's in investment grade markets in that there is less supply given the demand and then there's a reach for other things in high yielding sectors like European high yield or US high yield. I think that's something we've seen and it's still in the market right now. 
to the same extent that search for yield pressure is as evident today? I think so. I mean, it may have waned slightly over the last few months, but it's definitely evident there because you you get a push-on effect in terms of a typical investment-grade investor will have less assets that they can buy. And then in order to reach some yield target that they have, they will buy a portion of higher yielding assets that are available within their mandates. And so it passes on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we've seen. So that's a source of demand in the corporate bond market that's still in place. How does the ECB stopping their purchases potentially this year affect European corporate bond markets? So I think, you know, our contention is that the ECB look to taper their purchases in September of this year. Until that point, they're quite a large force in our market. But at the same time, they have lots of assets rolling off their balance sheet, which will still be a positive contribution. But it's definitely something that, you know, an investor should be mindful of, given the foreign demand may not fully replace what the ECB have been doing, but it will go some way to contributing to that. But it's definitely kept a lid on yields for some time. Uh, and I think that's, that's being priced into the market right now. Because I guess the central banks learnt in 2015 that being predictable and, as Mervyn King used to say, boring is good for markets and they're really trying to set out these clear paths for policy. So it will be well flagged and you're not concerned about a step change disruption as such? Not as much. I mean, if you look over the last few months or the last three to six months, whenever spreads have gone higher or there's been some volatility in the market, the European Central Bank has stepped up its purchases. So I think they'll be quite cognizant of that when they're tapering their programme at the end of the year. And you talked about how your strategy changes through the cycle. If we focus on right now, how you're looking across your portfolios, where are the particular opportunities that most excite you today? I think currently at the moment, definitely like subordinated bank capital is something that we find very interesting. And I think it goes hand in hand with the rate cycle because typically, you know, a hiking cycle tends to benefit banks from the balance sheet perspective. You know, they increase their net interest margins when lending. And also, I think over the last cycle, banks have done a lot in terms of fortifying their balance sheets. They have a lot more capital and they've done that by issuing paper at various levels. And so the amount of supply that's coming from banks is probably going to reduce at the lower levels of the capital structure. So we find subordinated bank capital quite an interesting place to be, especially if you're very constructive on the fundamentals of the particular banks. Can I ask you a bit more about financials? Because I think there's a prior out there that you really need a steep curve for financials. But we've talked with Nick there about the pressures on the long end and how the curve might not steepen even in a strong environment in the way that you might anticipate. So do you need a steep curve or is it enough for the economy to be strong and there to be volume of loan growth? I think you need both, but definitely the volume of loan growth and the velocity of the business that the banks are doing is what's going to underpin margin recovery and also a reduction in non-performing loans. That's kind of key. Definitely banks with a large capital markets business, they're going to benefit from steepening rates curves or just a general increase in interest rate volatility. But as we see from like the Spanish and the Italian banks and the amount of reserves they have versus their non-performing loan rates coming down, you know, that's been a positive for that sector. 
And while we're on the subject of Europe, are you finding that political risk is at the forefront of people's mind? I think people seem to me to be trading through politics. It's too hard to factor in and it's having less of an impact on markets or are you still finding people are really differentiating based on political concern? I think they're differentiating less because, it, like you say, it is kind of difficult to trade around or to invest around a political event. You tend to build up to the political event and it tends to flare down very quickly. So I don't think that's how the market's behaving at the moment. I think that's not the key concern, especially if you look at the Italian elections. You know, we didn't see that much of a rise in yields or spread levels into the election and then post the election result, which, you know, still there's some uncertainty in that market, but we've seen spreads come back relative to where they were before the election. And can you talk a bit more about EM for a minute? So obviously there were concerns about China through 2015. It seems that investors are more confident that they have a good strategic plan for deleveraging quality of growth over quantity and confidence is coming back more broadly to the emerging market spectrum. Do you agree with that or are you more cautious? No, I think we would agree with that. I mean, I think people are expecting growth to be around 6.5%. And definitely, I think the key concern in 2015, maybe early 16, was around Chinese real estate. But I think, you know, the central government have gone a long way to try to keep a lid on kind of the behaviour that was going on there in terms of the house price rises in tier one, two and three cities. And the fact that, you know, there's a lot of support implicitly from the government towards a lot of the Chinese real estate, I think that's calmed people down and it's been something that the market's been taking advantage of as well. My view has always been that we were so scarred from the the US housing crisis that we were just looking for another part of the world to apply our analysis to. And we decided it was China, but forgot the fact that 50% of people in China still live in rural areas and only 9% of the population have a mortgage. So it's a slightly different beast. Yeah, I think I'm certainly less worried about Chinese residential property bubble as well. Nick, can we talk about inflation for a minute? Because obviously it's been very much at the heart of the debate for a good few years now of whether inflation is dead, globalisation, technology, these kind of factors, or whether it's just sleeping. And as unemployment gets low, it's going to reassert itself. So on the dead versus sleeping spectrum, where do you sit? Well, let's examine both cases. So on the sleeping bit, one of the things that happened in 2017 was global investment went up like a rocket. And of course, what happens is if you get more investment, you can then, it's pretty logical, get productivity gains. If you start to get productivity gains, you can then start to pay workers. And of course, when we think of inflation, headline rates move up or down, it's all about wage inflation. So that rise in investment is the lead indicator that says that actually wage inflation should come back. The bit that says it's dead, though, is to look across to Japan as a roadmap. And when you look at Japan, Abenomics has been very successful in generating growth, very successful in generating jobs, but still there's been this lack of wage inflation. Why? Well, when you look at those jobs created in Japan, lots of part-time jobs versus full-time jobs, lots of jobs in the service sector as opposed to manufacturing. So you've got lots of part-time people working in fairly low-paid service sector jobs. The question for this year is, is that the roadmap when you look at other developed economies? As ever in financial markets, the truth is probably somewhere in between. 
Lots of those jobs created in the US or the UK are service sector jobs, but it's realistic to expect that we now get some productivity gains 10 years post-financial crisis. So we're likely to see wage inflation start to inch up. That means the general rate of inflation, the risk is it's higher, not lower. I think one of the other things that people underestimate about Japan and its disinflation is the role of demographics here. You've got 30% of the population on a fixed income pension. In fact, the pension system is such that it specifically doesn't reward you for inflation these days because they're trying to improve the sustainability of the system. And we know that pensioners don't like inflation. So that's quite a force against companies who are trying to raise prices. Now, some of those demographic trends are paralleled in parts of Europe, not so much in the US. So again, picking apart the differences in the structural and cyclical features is really important, as you say, I think, in this stage of the cycle. It is, and that's really the key, isn't it, to the Eurozone. You look at Germany, you look at Italy, and there's a population structure not dissimilar to that Japanese population structure. So if we're thinking of the risks to inflation going up, you're back in the Eurozone. That could well be that region where inflation still excites, only to disappoint. Nick, one of the most striking, perhaps the word I'm looking for is frightening charts I've seen over the last year, is quite how the duration has increased in the global aggregate bond benchmark. Should investors be buying bonds, buying these benchmarks in particular, when yields are this low? Well, certainly when you look at fixed income benchmarks, there's an argument to say that they are intellectually incoherent. Because when you think what happens... You have that country or company that issues lots of debt and then its importance in the index goes up. So there's something wrong with that. You're almost rewarding bad behaviour. Those entities that issue the most debt have the greatest weighting in the index, often the least ability to repay. And of course, today it's even worse because we've got huge parts of the world with negative yields. So some fixed income indices, they almost concentrate risk. You've got big sector exposures to individual countries. And of course, what you also have is durations have gone up a lot. So one of the questions is that you've got this great big opportunity set globally. The key is how do you access that? I think the key to accessing that is being in a flexible strategy that isn't tied to any benchmarks. And that's the key driver for a lot of unconstrained funds in that you can pick and choose which asset class to be in. So typically, investment grade benchmark might have a duration of something like six or six and a half years, whereas uh, high yield benchmarks are something around four or three and a half years. But with a flexible approach, you can pick the specific credit assets that you want and tailor your duration profile much lower, which is one way of weathering volatility as and when it picks up. And it's one of the key benefits of having a flexible strategy. And one of the other things with inflexible strategies is credit tends to do very, very well whenever volatility is low because you're collecting the coupon that's paid, the principal payment and the carry that you get over time. But at the same time, as Nick's alluded to, you know, volatility has increased. So you need to capture that in your portfolio, whether that's by convexity or with options, which allow you to buy volatility and then allow you to weather the volatility in your fund much better. Presumably, Usman, at this stage of the cycle, flexible credit is also where you need to be to cope with the fact that 
we think inflation is going to lift and interest rates are going to lift gradually. But there's some big questions. Is inflation dead or sleeping? Was the Fed going to go off the accelerator, but more quickly onto the break? You need to be now a bit more nimble at this stage of the cycle. And presumably you have the ability to do that. Not only do you need to be nimble, you need to have credit selection. You need to be investing in companies flexibly, but the companies that are going to do well over the cycle so that if interest rates do go up and do go up quickly, they can still hold their capital structure firm. They can pay back debt. They don't have leverage, which is very, very high. But by the same token, I think when you're late in the cycle and you've had this large rally and duration has increased, but yields are to Nick's point going negative, then there are still opportunities to capture value. With that positive growth, you can see companies that are high yield or were high yield have now transferred into the investment grade index because they've delevered, because they've grown into their capital structure. And so there are opportunities there that you can capture, which if you're benchmark constrained, you can't do that. And presumably someone who's looking to diversify their portfolio, maybe they've been heavily equity orientated over the last year, but now is looking to protect themselves against future volatility and risk but are worried that traditional fixed income isn't going to do that. Presumably this product then is a better diversifier at this point in time? I think it's certainly a better diversifier because it can move between the different asset classes. I mean, what are your key tools when volatility goes up? It's going to be your sector allocations, your allocations to different asset classes, be it EM. What part of the curve do you want to be in if you're concerned about interest rate rises? And are there kind of portfolio protection strategies that you can use, which will help you weather that movement? And flexible investing allows you to do that. Nick Usman, that was really interesting. Thanks for joining us on Insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on March 16th, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. 
Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC. And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.